Bespoken Media. Welcome to the latest Lantern Scottish Poetry Podcast with me, Ali Heather, and as always, my constant companion, Scotland's macker, Kathleen Javey. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, Ali. How are you? And fine fettle. We've got something really good for our listeners today. We have our first ever live recording that we did in front of an audience at Edinburgh's Summer Hall during the excellent Push the Boat Out Poetry Festival. Kathleen, you shared a lot of your work with us, which was brilliant. And do you want to tell our audience about our guest? Well, I'm joined by a younger poet, um, Niall Campbell, who hails from South Uist, although he now lives in Fife like, like the best folk. And he's a generation younger than me, and we were speaking about a lot about generational issues and what it is to inherit something and what is a tradition and how we can teach or mentor the young people, as you'll hear as we go on. It was a great chat, I think. It was a really good chat, but most importantly, the work that was shared was such high quality and the warmth from the live audience in the room really adds to this podcast. So you, dear listener, I hope you really enjoy this first live Lantern Poetry Podcast with guests Niall Campbell and loads of poems from the macker Kathleen Jaley. We always like to go with a theme. And this evening, the theme we're exploring is tradition, inheritance, what we inherit, and then what we ourselves pass on. Does that sound good? Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Ah, you're being recorded, so I, like, I want to I I sound like there's loads of people in the room. Give us a wee cheer for pushing the boat out. Good stuff, good stuff. It's a lovely audience in this evening. So I think we'll begin by introducing our two fantastic poets. They're both winners of Saltire Awards for their writing. I'm joined, first of all, by my constant companion on all the Lantern Poetry Podcasts, by Kathleen Jamie, Scotland's Macca. <laughs> and I'm also delighted to be joined by a poet who is now into his third collection. He, his first collection came out in 2011, and his work is absolutely sensational. I'd like you to also welcome, please, Niall Campbell. Niall, would you like to share your first poem with us? I appreciate it. Thank you very much. The first poem I'm going to read from Moontide, uh, so that was the first collection. It really, in many ways, it started a lot of things off for me. Won the Poetry London Prize, and then very soon after, Neil Astley of Blood Axe got in contact about this collection, and the, the collection came out only about, what, about seven or eight months after, which, you know, as people know, I mean, even trying to get a book now, it's about two or three years down the line. So it kind of snowballed quite quickly. There's been a panel earlier today about ecology and this poem does deal with being a bit of a one-person ecological disaster because it was to do, growing up on the islands, I would throw a lot of letters in bottles out to sea, particularly Orangina bottles, which were glass, beautiful glass bottles, just screw the cap on. So this is called The Letter Always Arrives at Its Destination. Then I wrote often to the sea to its sunk rope and its salt bed, to the large weed mass lipping the bay. The small glass bottles would be lined along the bedroom floor, 
ship green, or else church glass clear, such envelopes of sea mail. Only on the day of sending would a note be fed into each swollen, brittle hull. I had my phases. For so long it was maps, maps of wader nests, burrows and foxes' dens, maps where nothing was in its true position, my landscape blooming from the surf. Later I'd write my crush's names onto the paper as a small gift. The caps then tested and wax-sealed. None ever reached my dreamed America, its milk-white shore, as most would sink between the pier and the breakwater, and I would find that I'd written about the grass to the drowned sand again, and to the sunken dark I'd sent all the light I knew. A poem about what goes around comes around. Did you really? Did you want to go to America? Um, you said I, none ever reached my dreamed America. Did you want to like emigrate? I mean, there was always a sense of growing up in the islands that life was happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would come to the mainland maybe once a year, and it was always a sense back then. I think the boats were slower, so the boat was about nine or ten hours. So it was a real sense of you were going to the mainland. And it was somewhere else and somewhere else. And this is where technology happened and such things. You would, in teenage years, you would buy all your clothes in that one week spell that would last you to be fashionable for the whole year round. Uh, so yeah, there was always a sense of everything happened elsewhere. And it's only now you kind of look back and you think, ah, okay, no, like creativity, you know, the imagined landscape, the things you've kind of stored away, it's always back there, not, not here. So you return there in your imagination... You know, yeah. you live in the mainland now, of course. I li- but yeah, I live in Fife, and I think they imagined your imagination's landscape is, is set young. You know, it's set early on. And for me, you know, if I close my eyes, it's 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 only ever going to be the sound of the sea and cars passing a, on a road. That mm-hmm. sounds like the sea to me. So all these things, I think it's set, and yeah, it's it's always back there. I would, uh, I'd love to hear another another poem. There is a tremendous irony to me that you wanted to move closer to civilization that ended up in five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll defend. I'm in five now, and I'll defend. Oh, I'll defend five till I die. <laughs> <laughs> now, sorry, please. Would you like to share another poem with us? The second poem is called The Work, and for this one, it was more of a sense of, especially when you're not published, you think that all the poets set their own, you know, who they are, this sort of like marketing publicity type thing. And then you realise when you are published that you're very quickly pigeonholed because they want you to, to fit into small margins and they're very happy to put you there. And so this was a, an idea of playing around with it. Uh, so this is the work. If I have to, then let me be the whaler poet, launcher of the knife, portioning off the pink cut, salt trim and fat, tipping the larger waist of the side of the boat, and then to have the poem in the drawer. Or perhaps, let it be the poet-nurse, hearts measured by a small watch, balmer 
washer of old skin, stopping by the door in the night, or the oil driller poet, primed for the buried flame and heat lips to the black, aware how the oil fields in the evenings are lit like her own staggered desks, or the horse trader, or the smith, or the waiter poet, offering the choice wine, polishing to the light, the bringer of the feast and the bill. You know, it's, it's um, you mentioned these almost occupations. When I when I was uh, just starting out as a poet, and the older generation were still alive, they were very much defined by the geographical area. George Mackay Brown was in Orkney. Uh-huh. Ian Crichton Smith was Lewis, in Ireland. Lewis, yeah, yeah, and and um, that's gone. I don't think we have poets now as associated with their their home places mm. as we did until then. Well, I think it's a great loss. No, I mean that was the one thing I. I my one aim in poetry, narcissistic aim, Ian Crichton Smith can have Lewis, but you know those little maps of Scotland or whatever they do and everyone's names etched into where they are. Yeah. I just want South Uist. You can put me in really small font. <laughs> I'll have South Uist. You can have the rest of the Outer Hebrides. Uh, but no, I think it's a big part of just the fact we move around so much. I mean, my, my poor son, I mean, we'll, we'll, I've got poems about him later, but he was seven homes in seven years. Really? He just had to move around and mm-hmm. all the time. It's just... It's just work, it's just the nature of things as they are, um, which is a real loss. I mean, we'll talk about like tradition and things later, but the idea of trying to set uh, and kind of work together to create some sort of poetry community or culture, and if you're always moving, it's very yes. difficult to do. You work in English. What is your relationship with the Gaelic, and has it left an imprint on your work? Again, a complicated one. I think that they started Gaelic medium primary schools a few years after I started primary school. My main relationship with Gaelic, I suppose, would be the Gaelic Mass I attended. And I attended Gaelic Mass as an English speaker, and an only English speaker. So it was an hour every every Sunday where you were surrounded only by the rhythms of things and not by the meanings of things. And I think Ezra Pound actually talks about that, where he talks about what ways to make a poet. So he talks specifically about Hebridean songs as long as you don't know the meaning of it. You'd be surrounded by the hum and a hum and a hum and a... And this sort of sense of being washed over by sound and by rhythms all the time. Karen Solly, actually, I talked to her about this. I think she attended Latin masses, not knowing Latin. And so I think there's a sense of some poets who are just steeped and steeped. There's not that many other poets. I'm not saying it does, it's not an ultimate rule, because you know, the people of Uist are not speaking poetry all the time. But for me, certainly, I just I put it down to that, that sense of just being surrounded week by week by week of people calling and people replying and people, you know, the vowel patterns. Mm. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that work. I'd like to hear something for Kathleen at this stage. You've also got a poem you'd like to share with us about that sense of passing on and breaking of traditions. This, um, this as you say, we're talking about um, tradition and the leaving of tradition or being thrust out from, from one's tradition and, and sometimes absolutely desperate to get out from under it, you know. Um, this is quite an old poem. It's called The Graduates. I was the first one in my family to go to university. You know, like a lot of people of my generation, that option wasn't there for my parents. And they were both proud and, and in my mother's case, a little bit askance. Didn't quite trust what was going on. And it occurred to me that, you mentioned America, that graduating was like emigrating. 
except I stayed in the same country, but it was a kind of different country. Mm. Only yesterday I was called a middle-class tosser. You know? and <laughs> and I, thought, I, I apologise. <laughs> I'd had a few drinks. <laughs> you know? But I thought, that's it. That's what going to university did from, from my mother's people were coal miners, you know. So then I started to think about this business of graduating, being like emigrating. And I wrote this poem called The Graduates. And one thing we, we leave behind is language, you know. A lot of the Scots I knew as a kid, I had to leave behind at that juncture. The Graduates. If I chose children, they'd know stories of the old country, the place we never left. I swear I remember no ship slipping from the dock, no cluster of hurt, proud family, waving till they were wee as china milkmaids on a mantelpiece. But we have surely gone and must knock with brass-kilted pipers the doors to the old land, we emigrants of no farewell, who keep our bit language and jokes and quotes, our working knowledge of coal pits, fevers, lost like the silver bangle I lost at the shows one Saturday, tried to conceal, denied, but they're not daft. And my bright monoglot burns will discover, misplaced among the bookshelves, proof rolled in a red tube, my degree, a furled sail, my visa. That's a really interesting idea, the idea of graduating as emigrating. Mm. We've got this lovely audience here in the Summer Hall in Edinburgh as part of Push the Boat Out. Just hands up, who is the first in their family to go to uni? That's quite a lot. That's, it's a quite a dark room. But I'm saying that's about half of you, is it? It's a good old chunk. And there's a lot of nodding heads as you're reading there. It's yeah. obviously a very... It's a generational thing. You mm. know, it became available. Gra- we had grants, for God's sake. You mm. know, which, um, you know, it doesn't happen now. I think we should talk more about that. But first, I'd love to hear, I feel that like Kathleen's next poem feeds in to this, uh, this wider discussion. Would you like to share your next one with us, Kathleen? The tradition. Please. I always wrangled with the idea of tradition, not, not least because I, I was female, you know, and the tradition was apparently overweeningly male, and I didn't want to be part of a tradition, but this poem is about that. The tradition. For years I wandered hill and moor, half looking for the road, winding into fairyland, where that blacksmith kept a forge, who'd heat red hot the dragging links that bound me to the past. Then, with one almighty hammer blow, unfetter me at last. Older now, I know nor fee nor anvil breaks those chains, and the wild ways we think we walk just bring us here again. So let's talk about that. As a poet, what do you inherit? The tradition? What do you, are you aware of inheriting it as it's going on, as you're finding yourself as a writer? What was your relation to it? And what is it? Complicated, I think, because I don't know, I was thinking about this more recently. Maybe your tradition or maybe what you inherit changes book to book. You know, I think there is a sense of being obsessed with certain poets at certain times of your life, going back, even with certain books, as rereading, um, Anna Karenina recently, and I forgot that the character I, I love most, Lievin, I'd forgotten even was in the book. You know, I thought this was about Anna Karenina and Vronsky and this passionate love, and now I come back to it and it's about this kind of person, more subdued love, more careful love, more kind of um, quieter sense. And with poetry, I think it's maybe the same, this idea of a tradition. 
I think there is a Scottish tradition in terms of or, or what I see as a certain mindset or a certain musicality to it that you see in 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 Ireland, you see in Wales. I would say as well, uh, a, a different thing I think in England. Uh, so there is something I would say that I, I I see myself as a continuation of for sure, and I'm proud of that. But I think it's much more complicated than just saying it's ah, my dear Madame McCaig. It's not that. It's something more. It's you know more outward looking, and it's more this individual poem, and maybe this one by Milosh or somebody else, and then it changes book to book as well. I, I don't know what you think. I think when I was as younger and just starting out as a writer, it was important to me not to not to. I felt I just had to get away from it, you know, carve a bit of space mm. for myself, you know. And um, I think possibly... Had I had your experience of being in a group with, with yeah. teachers or mentors, which wasn't available to us at that time, I might have thought very, very differently. I don't know if I would have been brave enough to do that, a course like the one you did, actually. But that's that's by the by. They, they just didn't exist, mm -hmm. you know, for, for my age group. But when I was, as I say, sat now as a... As a writer, very early on, I just didn't feel I could engage with all this other stuff because it was just overwhelming and there was just no space, certainly no space for me. So for years, I just had to keep a bit of a distance, which thankfully I've lived long enough to you know, be able to get back into it now. I think that's the interesting thing about St Andrews as well was when I was on it, and I think it's a continuation now, it's this idea of cross-pollination because we had the almost the makings of a joke. There was a Scotsman, an Irishman, an Englishwoman, three Americans and a guy from Dubai. So everyone was bringing their own thing to get there. You weren't just steeped in one. You weren't just right. this is, we're in Scotland, it's just looking at Scottish poets and that's it, that's the end and that's the end. Okay, everyone's bringing up North American poets. Ah, do you know Ram Ricardo Williams? Do you know, you know, Tracy K. Smith? You know, European poets as well. Everyone was bringing their own sense of something different. And I think, again, that's the value of the course. If you can get a truly international course, again, you're learning from the people you're around if only because your interests become their interests and theirs become yours. Really? Well, I'd love to hear I'd love to hear some more work. Neil's second collection, uh, Noxury, came after the birth of your first child. So Noxury, yeah, I, I was very fortunate. I won the Edwin Morgan Prize in 2014, which was enough money to, to keep me off for a couple of years. My son had been born about two months before, and so rather than having terrible uh, dead-end jobs... I just stayed off with him for two years and I'm like most poets good again up in the night or being awake in the night anyway. So I just looked after him and yeah, it was, it was just a, a, a beautiful experience. I think especially for a father of, of a, of a son to have that. And it's borne out now, you know, in terms of our closeness and in terms of our relationship. So this is a first poem called The Night Watch. It's 1am and someone's knocking at sleep's old battered door. And who could it be but this boy I love, calling for me to come out into the buckthorn field of being awake? And so I go out, finding him there, no longer talking, but now crying and crying, wanting to be held. But shh, what did you want to show that couldn't wait until the morning? Was it the moon? Because I see it. The first good bead on a one-bead string. Was it the quiet? Because I owned it once, but found I wanted more. Thank you.
There's quite a few uh, sort of little laughs of recognition in the room. Mm-hmm. Got a few uh, sleepless parents or people that have been through that process. I think that's a, a wonderful piece of work and I'd actually love to move straight on to Good Night. So Good Night, um, so that first poem was obviously very early on when, when Soren was um, up a lot in the night. And then the kind of ridiculous thing you find is by the time they're two or three or whatever age, they start sleeping through the night, but you've gotten so used to being awake that you're awake anyway. <laughs> but awake without that sense of doing something good or caring for somebody, that sort of sense of worth in being in, awake in the night. So this is the last poem from the collection, again, from when Soren was a, a little bit older. It's called Good Night. No curtains should be open at that time, but ours weren't drawn and the cold world looked in. Three years into his life, come to the window, sleep hadn't found my door again. So up, I watched the morning's morning open out, the frosted ground clean as an envelope. Awake, so tenderly awake, I felt like the lamp lighter of some old city when the city's lit and the crowds dispersed. So much was love, so much was work. I took the small spark post to post. I cradled it and let it guide me to my darkling house. Good morning, here's the brightness in the dawn. Good night. Here's love like a faint snowfall. Good night. There's certainly one tradition we have, I hope, gotten rid of. That one that says that looking after kids is women's work and men go out and make a living. And yeah. If we can upset all that, good. It's valuable for men, I mean, it more than is. anything. Yeah. You know, this sense of, uh, again, you know, you know, to, to, to have a bond with your child that is there and set from the start rather than a thing that you visit and you drop in. Um, yes. I mean, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Know. Well done, you. Kathleen, um, we were speaking about your own, uh, the, like, the motherhood part of life. <laughs> and you were telling me something quite funny because I didn't hate parents myself. And I'd say to Kathleen, it's like, oh, God. Like they seem horrible. No offense <laughs> to your children, but they seem horrible. And uh, you were you were vehemently contradicting me. <laughs> Everybody else is horrible, <laughs> but it's true. You know, isn't it true? Nature nature plays a big trick on you and makes your own child glow with yeah. wonder and yeah. beauty and that. And it's so obviously the best bear in the world. Just obviously, <laughs> and you know you're being had. You know you're being worked. You know yeah. by millions of years of evolution, but at the same time. It obviously is the best baby ever. <laughs> <laughs> that feels true for you, Neil? Yeah, if only because I was looking at photos of my son when he was a year or a year and a half recently, and he looks terrible. I mean, he's, he's not covered, and yes. he's only got that wee patch of hair that's down the middle. But you're thinking but it's at the time, charming oh my snot, God. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't remember the snot. It's only there in the photographs. And so, Kathleen, you've explored parenthood. Your, your motherhood has informed some of your work, and you've got something to share with us on that. Well, yes, it is a while ago now. My kids are in their 20s now. But, but um, shortly before my, my firstborn arrived, I was worried. That thing hadn't kicked in of finding it the most beautiful baby in the world because I hadn't been born yet. And I was genuinely worried that I would not like this person who was yeah. going to come and live with us. You know, and 
what what do we do then? And all I could think about was my worst flatmate. You know, <laughs> 20 years of this, what are we going to do? Of course it didn't happen. But just prior to his birth, I wrote this, um, this poem. We live on the tea. And uh, I thought, well, I could just make a wee basket and just float downstream, you know. <laughs> the tea Moses. What can I fashion for you but a woven creel of river rashes, a golden oriole's nest, my gift wrought from the firth? And choose my tide, either the flow when watertight you'll drift to the uplands, my favourite hills, held safe in eddies, where salmon, wisdom and guts withered in spawn, rest between moves that slither of body as you were born. Or the ebb, when water will biddle you to snag on reeds, the river pilot leaning over the side, name of God, and you'll change hands, tractorman, grieve to the farnwife who takes you into her competent arms, even as I drive, slamming the car's gears, spitting gravel on tracks down between berry fields, engine still racing, the door wide as I run toward her, crying, leave him. Please, it's okay, he's mine. So Adney, Adney spoke to you about that poem before. I didn't realise that was, uh, as it emerged, the way it emerged, rather. The tame Moses. Mm. You do a lot of work in nature writing. You were down at Holyrood yesterday protesting for the environment. Mm -hmm. And I felt there was something in the Moses story, the fear of bringing a young one into this world, in which so many kind of uh, red warning lights are flashing. I had to go and fight. I had to go and look up the Wikipedia for Moses. And uh, he had a rough run of it. Um, it wasn't an easy time to be no a bairn. No Sunday school for you. No Sunday school for me. A difficult time to be a bairn, I would say. Locusts, etc. Um, and I, I felt, ah, oh, what Kathleen's doing here is saying, oh, bringing a bairn in this world is not the best thing to do. There's a lot of, there's a lot of trouble on the horizon for my wee man. Um, was, was any of that in there? No, or is that no, no. He's 27 now, and, and 27, 30 years ago, that never entered my head. Mm -hmm. But he is now saying he won't have children because of exactly that. Oh, really? Yeah. don't know if that's... He will or not. You know, he's got years to decide, but but that's a, a thought that young people now are mm. horrifically, you know, are saying to each other, you know, whereas my generation just a, three decades ago, you know, that's that's how grim it has become. No. You know? Yeah. I sincerely hope they do because, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I sincerely hope they'll have children if they wish to because it's such an act of hope and triumph and... and if you're thinking like that, do you not? Do you think? Do you think that your kid's younger than mine, sir? My, my son's nine. What, 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 I saw that uh, Heaney quote saying, "Optimism is the idea that things will turn out right. Hope is the idea that there's something worth striving for, or mm -hmm. something along those lines." And I think there is that sense of. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have a second one if only because I've done the nights and I couldn't do the nights. There's not an <laughs> ecological side of it really on my end, but no, I mean. I, I, yeah, I, I think you've just got to, I mean, what do we do as humans? We kind of, the idea is that we, we do try and find some sort of better way and we try, try and, and we, you know, usually we mess it up, but, you know, there's always that sense of you keep going and you try again. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't imagine not, yeah, like, uh, certainly now I couldn't imagine not. You mentioned in the poem your monoglot, your mm. monoglot bairns, mm. and you yourself come from a Scots 
speaking area and a Scots mm-hmm. tradition. You mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. your mum's mining stock. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought we'd talk a wee bit about... Is that, is that yours now? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought we'd talk a wee bit about the Scots uh-huh. uh, language tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we talked about Gaelic mm. for South Uist. And just mm-hmm. coincidentally, just before we started, I nipped past Maestias in the queue to get to the clergy. And uh, I passed a guy, Davy Cunningham. Was it Davy Cunningham? Davy Cunningham, who told me he was a teacher in Preston Pants, out near Edinburgh here, and then in South Queensferry. And he taught Scots at schools. And he said he was fighting against the tight. Mm-hmm. In my own career, I've had the privilege of going around a lot of different schools and I'm seeing a renaissance in the Scots language where folk are way more comfortable with it now than they m- maybe would have been in the 80s and the 90s when, as you were talking about the idea of success in South Uist was to get away. The idea of success in the schemes of Dundee or in rural Angus was to make sure nobody kent you were for the schemes of Dundee or for rural Angus. So you had the air of sophistication about you. Which, as you can see, I've achieved. <laughs> but Kathleen, you've had an interesting relationship with Scots, and actually you're, you're moving quite strongly towards it, aren't you? Well, I decided um, that I did want to, to try and write in Scots, and I set myself a project in the last few years of, of doing just that, writing poems in Scots, and that meant I had to get the language up to a state when I could use it to write poems in, which meant spending a lot of time reading and reading dictionaries and cross-referencing and listening and, you know, it's been good fun. And so I, ha- I now have a manuscript of poems in Scots, which um, is book-worthy, that's the word, you know. So I do have enough pieces to make a book of them, which is something, I've, uh, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. But there's a lot of overcoming, as you say, overcoming of, <sighs> is it shame? Is it shame? Something. Yeah, something we have to overcome. And then to make, as, as I say, make a language that you can, you can use for, for poems of a certain kind. Anyway, I have strived to do that, striven to do that. But half of what you have to overcome, the, the worst enemies of Scots are the Scots speakers. You know? That's you, David. <laughs> and they're, they're, one of the big things I had to overcome was this, this uh, well, that word's for Ayrshire, that word's for Aberdeenshire, you can't have them both in the same sentence. And you're like, do you want this language or do you not? You know? <laughs> and so, <laughs> well, you can't do that synthetic. What in the hind does that mean? So anyway, I made a Scotch that I understand. And there's no fancy words and it's just words I hear, you know, often. Anyway, that's my gripe. No, thank you, thank you for it. I've always thought that Burns's feather was fae just north of me. Burns's mm-hmm. feather was fae mm-hmm. uh, the Mairns, mm-hmm. and Burns was fae Ayrshire, and he was quite happy to use words fae both great lexicons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you don't understand a word, lump it. Or look up a dictionary. Ah, you know. All good options, all good options. But please, in fact, just a quick show of hands. Why here would be a Gaelic speaker, or would have a bit of Gaelic background to them? No Got one down the back there. Lovely, lovely. And who would come for a Scots-speaking area? Would kind of bit of Scots just naturally? It's got one, two, oh, three, four, few, five, yeah. six, seven. Yeah. That's eight. That's eight, folk. That's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the uh, listeners at home, this is a, a crowd of about ten thousand, roughly. <laughs> um, so, so <laughs> eight out of ten thousand isn't the best. But there's so there is a good kind of Scots tradition in the room with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so please, Kathleen, I'd love to hear it. Um, I'm going to read a translation. I started my adventures in Scots by translating into Scots. And this is from um, Holderlin, who's an 18th century German poet. And 
he possibly um, is contemporary with Burns, so that the language works, it goes nicely to Scots anyway. This is called Haim. Host to ken if whiles a donner your back braise, O yard, and poo wild berries to slock in my love for you. Here were jags o' roses and gin trees put out their sweet air, aside the birks at noon, when in the yellow glebe growin corn rishels and the ickers nod like a hearst. But now a blow the aches lift for a wonner and spear havenward, yonner real kent bell jows gowden notes, at the oor the birds walkin yon smear, and as weel. Could I ask? Could I ask? Could we just revisit that just slightly more slowly? Because we saw those eight folk in the room there that are like our fair Scots tradition. But if we just do it a, a wee bit slower. Do through you want an English script? Do I want an English? Do we want an English translation? Nah. Uh, just the same, but just a wee bit slower. Give us a chance to kind of get on board with it. Him. Was to ken if whiles a donner your back braise o yard, and poo wild berries to slocken my love for you. Here were jags of roses and green trees put out their sweet air, aside the birks at noon, when in the yellow glebe growin corn rishels and the ickers nod like a hearst. But now a blow the aches lift were a wonner and spear heavenward, yonner wheel kent bell jows gowden notes at the oor the birds walkin yon smear, and as wheel. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Neil, before, before we discuss more about that, you obviously live in Fife now, which, all joking aside, is a good Scots-speaking part of the world. Um, something about, according to the census, about 40% of folk in Fife, according to the census, say they have Scots language skills. Is this something that's new to your lug? Is this something that uh, you feel quite at home with? No, probably not, I'll be honest. I think we had an experience, I was trying to one Scots line... I had to do about eight takes on it. Right, so we were, uh, we were filming uh, Inna Kathleen's new poems and they were doing a reading together and she had to do one line of Gaelic and he had to do one line of Scots and it was like watching a car crash in slow motion. <laughs> they, were, they were freaking their cells out in advance. You could see their eyes hitting the line before they got to it. It was just like yeah. pure terror. No. So uh, there's, a, there's a need for comfort in the, yeah, in the exactly. language. Exactly. It's, it just, it's just not there. I love, I mean, I love listening to it. I mean, mm -hmm. again, the, the, I'm, I'm so at home with Listening to things I don't understand. I think like, this goes back to the mass and this goes back to my own intellect, perhaps, anyway. But um, as long as it's got a music to it, I'll go along with it, mm. you know. But uh, in terms of speaking it or in terms of natural comfort, probably not. But I still I appreciate it. Great stuff. Great stuff. So with Scots, Kathleen, mm. I've noticed in some of your previous work, indeed, even in the Tay Moses, when a voice is speaking and it's just you're giving it to the people, Often they'll speak in Scots, thinking in any of your taste sonnets, the ospreys. Uh -huh. uh, the, so two ospreys come to land at the Tay uh, and they, they nest every year. And the, the people, and like unnamed people in the poem say, that's them ba both back in, both of them. Yes. And it's, uh -huh. it, you kind of gee Scots to the people. Do you think Scots occupied a kind of, a, like a kind of earthy, the real folk? Uh yeah, that line that you mentioned, I don't think I could have written it in English. It would have been so inauthentic in English. I, it was a genuine line that I heard, mm. and I could just, I know exactly who said it to me. And to put that into a nice English would have been, it would just been all wrong, mm. you know. 
thinking of, in a neighbor of yours as mm-hmm. well in another poem says and here's us as I women holding the whole thing together uh-huh. so d- d- does Scots occupy that for you or is that just purely you happen to hear I, it in I think Scotland? that just happens to be where, where I where I heard those phrases I heard them in in the, in the Scots and sometimes when I'm writing in Scots I back translate it into English and it just sounds too highfalutin and mm. all just wrong it's a weird emotional mm. it's even emotional yep yeah, it's just yeah highfalutin and mm. it just it just isn't it isn't right it's inauthentic and sets me on edge one thing we like to do on the lantern poetry podcast is share work fade the tradition and uh, we'll finish this lovely uh, session we were having with you at the summer hall with readings that um, our poets today would like to share. Niall, do you have something you'd like to share? I do. I think uh, the use of the plural there might have to go out the window. I couldn't find Kathleen's bag. <laughs> it's upstairs. So instead, singular reading from the tradition. Going back to Ian Cragton Smith, he has a poem called the Te- uh, called Teachers. I came across this online. The my relationship with Ian Crichton Smith is quite curious. He's got the um, the link to Lewis, but one of the uh, collections he has has a little um, poem that goes, I send this to you by a boy with a pointed head. Do not trust him. He is a Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called The Chinese Letters. I think that's in the poem The Chinese Letters. <laughs> so I read this, and as somebody who's been through scrapes and does have a very oddly shaped head, I felt particularly drawn into that conversation. Just for the listeners, would we describe it as hexagonal, the head? Yeah, I think it's uh, a 50 pence piece type. Um, So this poem is called Teachers. I have met old teachers in strange places. Some have had strokes. Some play the violin in a quiet little heaven of their own. And some are standing on the banks of Hades with books about Julius Caesar in their hands. English grammar, absolute ablative. Sometimes a huge wind blows them away the leaves of autumn. Sometimes in the snow, wearing their gowns of chalk, they are writing. I have met the old teachers in strange places, and there are apples trembling in their hands. That is absolutely wonderful. Keep the applause going for the excellent Kathleen Jamie, your macker. And keep the applause going for the excellent Neil Campbell. And one final round of applause for your excellent selves. It's been so good sharing this session with you. Enjoy the rest of the push the boat out. And mind and check out the other Lantern Poetry podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed that. It was great to have Neil Campbell with us. Thanks very much to him. And thanks very much to the fantastic Push the Boat Out Festival for hosting us. Absolutely. We will be back very soon with more episodes of the Lantern Scottish Poetry Podcast. This series is made in partnership with the Scottish Poetry Library and with financial support from Creative Scotland. It's produced and edited by Patrick Wallace at Bespoken Media. See you soon.
Produced by Bespoken Media.